Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. This episode is brought to you by MedSchoolCoach.com. I've been working as an advisor for MedSchoolCoach for over four years. I know their dedication to clients and I know they get results. Founded in 2007, Med School Coach is the leading provider of services related to all things medical school. From helping you craft the perfect application personal statement to working with you to individualize a comprehensive strategy for an optimal medical school application. Med School Coach does it all. And coming soon, they're launching what is sure to be the leading virtual tutoring service for the MCAT, USMLE, Comlex, and Shelf exams. Head on over to MedSchoolCoach.com to get matched with a personal advisor from top institutions who has experience preparing students for their exams. MedSchoolCoach can help you achieve the score all your hard work deserves. MedSchoolCoach.com for all things med school. Today's question comes from the USMLE 2016 set of sample questions for step one, and it goes like this. A previously healthy 24-year-old woman comes to the emergency department because of fever and diarrhea for the past five days. She has more than 10 bowel movements daily, accompanied by abdominal cramping and the passage of mucus and blood clots. She has not traveled out of the United States. Tympanic temperature is 39 degrees Celsius, 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Bowel sounds are increased. Test of stool for occult blood is positive. Which of the following is the most likely causal organism? Is it A. Bacillus cereus, B. Cryptosporidium parvum, C. Giardia lamblia, D. Shigella sonii, E. Staphylococcus aureus? And the answer is D. Shigella sonii. So let's dissect this question a bit. This question asks you if you break it down and look at the vignette about a 24 year old woman who has fever and diarrhea. The important points to note about this question is the fact that she has blood within the diarrhea and fever. The question then is basically asking you which of the following organisms is a cause of bloody diarrhea. If you notice each of these answer choices or options presents a cause of diarrhea or food poisoning or some other GI disease, but there is only one of them that causes bloody diarrhea. The concept of the question writers are testing you is whether or not you know which organism uniquely causes not just diarrhea, but bloody diarrhea. So let's go through them. Bacillus cereus. So Bacillus cereus is a gram-positive rod that causes food poisoning. It's classically seen in questions that uh, discuss reheated rice. This concept of reheated rice is almost a buzzword or buzz phrase that is uniquely associated with Bacillus cereus disease. The diarrhea that occurs is a watery, non-bloody type of diarrhea and abdominal pain that occurs as soon as eight hours after consumption of rice-containing bacillus cereus spores and enterotoxin. Next is Cryptosporidium parvum. Cryptosporidium causes a severe diarrhea, but only in AIDS patients. In immunocompetent hosts, it merely causes a mild, watery diarrhea. 
Giardia lamblia is a protozoan that causes bloating, flatulence, and foul-smelling fatty diarrhea, and it's classically seen in questions where the patient has a history of camping or hiking. It does not cause bloody diarrhea. Of the distractors listed, Staphylococcus aureus is the final one. It is a gram-positive, beta-hemolytic, catalase-positive, coagulase-positive cocci in clusters. It causes food poisoning due to ingestion of a preformed toxin, typically with a very, very short incubation period. People will present with symptoms as soon as two hours following ingestion of food that contains the toxin. It presents with non-bloody diarrhea and vomiting. Now to return to the correct answer in this question, the cause of this woman's bloody diarrhea, another term for which is dysentery, is Shigella sanii. Note that dysentery or bloody diarrhea is caused by a Shiga toxin and causes mucosal damage. This is the reason why the diarrhea is bloody. Notably, Shigella species also cause hemolytic uremic syndrome. And as an aside, it is the Shiga-like toxin from E. coli O157H7, also referred to as EHEC or enterohemorrhagic E. coli. It is the shiga-like toxin within this gram-negative rod that causes hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is recognized by its classic triad of anemia, thrombocytopenia, and acute renal failure. Here's some exciting news for Inside the Board's listeners. We've partnered up with some of the leaders in board preparation to offer you an extremely discounted package of high-yield resources that you can use to succeed on your clerkships as well as during medical school. You third years may have just finished step one, breathed your sigh of relief, and now you're ready to tackle the wards. But you're wondering, what should I use to study during third year? Trust me, it's a whole different ball game. We've got the solution for you. We've convinced a few major players in the board's preparation space to let us offer you their products in conjunction with a premium subscription to Inside the Boards. I'm not going to tell you who those are now. You need to check out InsideTheBoards.com. But trust me, this package is going to be killer. Plus, we're going to be offering you a premium subscription to Inside the Boards, which will give you access to leaders in the board's preparation space for their mentoring and advice, access to exclusive webinars uh, to help you succeed on your shelf exams. And you want to be one of the first to purchase this package because initially we're going to offer a free copy of a comprehensive resource that you can take with you to study on the wards as well as some exclusive inside the board swag. And this is only gonna be offered until early August. So keep checking insidetheboards.com for the third year study smarter bundle. If we get a good response, we'll be doing the same thing for second years. And now my interview with Dr. Kevin Poe. Today we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Kevin Poe, who is a practicing board certified internal medicine physician, uh, founder of the notable website, kevinmd.com which gets something like 20 to 30 million page views per year. He's also contributed to publications ranging from USA Today to the New York Times, have appeared on uh, CNN, and you are the co-author of the book Establishing, Managing, and Protecting Your Online Reputation, a Social Media Guide for Physicians and Medical Practices. So thanks, Kevin, for being on. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me, Patrick. My pleasure. So before uh, we talk a little bit about social media, I think the first thing I'd like to do is just kind of discuss uh, your personal story um, as a physician, as a medical student, and kind of your career. So why don't you just uh, let us know, where did you uh, train? Sure. I trained at Boston University, grew up in Toronto, did high school there, and I went to Boston University uh, into their seven-year combined bachelor's uh, medical school program. I went there for undergrad and medical school, and I liked Boston so much, I stayed there for internal medicine residency. After I finished, I moved up about 45 minutes drive north to Nashua, New Hampshire, where I practiced primary care internal medicine in a hospital-owned practice, but uh, that's where I came from. Okay. So what influenced you in terms of your decision to become a doctor? I think the biggest reason is that I like to hear people's stories and medicine is all about stories and I think where people come from their stories they fascinate me and I think that's the major reason because if I hear their stories and it's one of the most powerful ways that 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 I can make a difference by uh, including myself and seeing if I can help them as their story progresses so that's number one I think the second reason is that patients often don't have a voice in our dysfunctional healthcare system. It's tremendously difficult to navigate, especially if you're a patient. So obviously, as a physician, I help these patients throughout their journey, and I can have a big influence in getting their voice heard and guiding them in our healthcare system. I hear you. Great. That's uh, that's good to hear. When you initially got into medical school, were you set on pursuing primary care as a specialty? No, I can't say that it was. When I got into medical school, it was really out of high school because I was in that combined program. And I didn't have a specific specialty that I focused on. Uh, I think that as I progressed through medical school, there wasn't a particular area that interested me so much. I wanted to spend my rest of my career on it. So I wanted to be uh, an expert in a little bit of everything. And internal medicine was a great way to do that. And actually, in hindsight, I think it was a good way to to help me uh, in my social media endeavors. Uh, on Kevin MD, I, I hear a lot of stories from a broad swath of, of doctors, not only primary care doctors, but various specialty physicians as well. And I think that with my generalist background, it's helped me become more attuned to some of the issues that all doctors face. And it's actually helped me uh, going forward, uh, being a voice for not only primary care physicians, but also specialty physicians and clinician population as a whole. I, I think one thing that I've noticed in in uh, throughout the years of Kevin MD articles showing up on my social media feeds, and you provide very high quality content, you and your guest authors as well. Some of the best articles I've seen have touched on uh, the subject of physician burnout. I guess one thing I just to kind of uh, keep this uh, conversation somewhat related to uh, board study and whatnot. Do you think that the importance which medical students attach to, uh, say, their performance on certain exams in some way contributes to feelings of burnout or adds to stress unnecessarily in medical school? Let me take a, take a step back. And I think that one of the missions that I have on my site is to 
definitely share the stories of the many who intersect with our healthcare system but are rarely heard from. And I do want to share a lot of the stories that medical students, pre-medical students, and physicians face. And as you mentioned, clinician burnout is one of the biggest untold stories that are out there. Uh, not only are doctors facing burnout, but also medical students as well. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when when I was training in medical school, you didn't want to show any signs of weakness. You wanted to show up uh, on your clinical rotations, no matter how you were feeling. Being sick and not able to perform your duties was perceived as a sign of weakness. Uh, it was almost had it almost had a military style uh, component, like uh, uh, where where you had to show up no matter what. And I think that if you take that mentality too far, you are going to be more prone to burnout. And back then, there weren't a lot of resources to help burnt out students deal with depression, deal with anxiety, and deal with the stress of going through medical school and residence. I think that by sharing these stories, it's one of the ways where we can address this issue head on because we can't fix the problem until there's greater awareness of it. So one of the goals of my site is for medical students and doctors to share firsthand stories and let others in the same boat know that they're not alone because by sharing these stories is the only way to let others know that they're not suffering in silence. So I think that um, I, the feedback I've gotten from yourself and others has been tremendously rewarding. And I think I'm making a little bit of a difference by having this platform where clinicians and medical students can share their stories of burnout. So to address your question, does the increased emphasis on board exams, does it contribute to burnout? I'm, I'm sure it does. I think that to be a great doctor, it has to be more than your board scores. And I think a lot of medical schools are going towards a more holistic evaluation for physicians, uh, more holistic training. So they're not so focused on board, board scores. Uh, you need to focus on how you communicate with patients. You need to focus how you work within a team. And I think these are all traits that are starting to become more valued and starting to become more recognized because those are the traits that we need in doctors today. Amen. <laughs> what about you from your personal experience? Were there any times, especially in medical school, where you were facing the temptation or tendency towards burnout feelings? And how did you deal with them? No, absolutely. I think that during medical school and, and residency, especially residency, it, it is so grueling. There's so much demand placed on tr uh, physicians in training that absolutely there, there have been times where, where I felt burnt out, where I felt a little bit down and depressed and uh, wondering what my goals are in life going forward, I would ask myself, is this something that I would want to be doing for the rest of my life? And I think that we need to take a step back and realize that medicine can't be our lives. We need interests outside of medicine. As I've grown, I have two young daughters, I have a family, and they come first. I always say my daughters will only be young once, but medicine will always be there for me. And, uh, you need to really keep that in perspective. In medical school and residency, I played in a a, uh, a physician physician orchestra. I played a violin, and that was one outlet that I had outside of medicine. And now, of course, I have my family. So I think it's important not to make medicine the center of your life. You need interest and you need passions outside of medicine to, to give you that balance and help alleviate burnout. You know, I, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, physicians, since the time of the Hippocratic group of uh, doctors, have, I think, recognized the need for balance. And they didn't have Twitter like 2,400 years ago. But in truth, the old adage 
from the Hippocratic corpus, Ars Longa Vita Brevis, the, the art of medicine is, is long, uh, life is short, encapsulates what you were uh, saying about your daughters being young once and medicine always being there. I, I think you'd probably agree that the achieving that balance or making sure one's priorities in life are rightly ordered probably does contribute to the better quality of, of life that a physician, him or herself, would have, as well as probably making them better doctors. Uh, I guess the paradox would be the more you throw into medicine, if you make it your job as the number one thing that you do in life and pursue it to the detriment of other aspects of your personal development, it, it probably makes you a, a worse clinician to a certain degree. No, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And you're right, it is a paradox. And the, the, I always say when I talk about burnout, if we as clinicians, if we can't take care of ourselves, how can we be expected to take care of patients? So, yes, you do need that balance, the proverbial work-life balance, but it, it's true. You do need that balance, and if you can't be happy, if you can't be satisfied in both your life and your job, there's no way that you will be in the right frame of mind to take yep. care of patients. Uh, physician, heal thyself. <laughs> All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, KevinMD.com. How did that come about? So I started Kevin MD back in the spring of 2004, and back then there were there were very few blogs in general, and I, there were probably fewer than 50 to 100 clinician blogs, and obviously I didn't know what to expect back then. And I remember writing a post about Vioxx. Um, if you remember, Vioxx was a medicine uh, that a lot of people were on for their arthritis, and it got recalled by Merck. And I remember writing a piece on it on my site giving suggestions to patients as to what they can ask their own doctors about. And after I wrote that piece, a few days later, I was talking to a patient and she said that I saw your blog post this morning and I was comforted by what you had to say. And now I realize I have other options for Vioxx. And I think I realized then that social media wasn't a fad. It was, it was, a, it was a concept that was here to stay because you can really communicate with patients outside of the exam room on the internet. And I think that's a tremendously powerful tool because with social media, we can talk to many patients at once. We're not educating patients one-on-one in the exam room. We have this platform where we can talk to hundreds and millions of patients and educate them and guide them to, to better sources of information, more reliable sources of information. And of course, we could hear from patients as well and get that two-way feedback about how we can improve and also, patients can share the experiences that they're going through as well, and they can teach us as well because a lot of patients, they're experts in their own bodies and their own diseases, and we can learn from them as well. And uh, as social media has evolved and the evolution of social media is, is, has gone so fast, we now have Twitter, Facebook, we have YouTube, we have uh, Facebook Live, we have all these video platforms, and I think that the concept of social media has, has grown not only where we can better connect with patients, we now can have our own voices because uh, of healthcare reform and how healthcare is changing. It's important for clinicians to have a voice in that. And I think social media also is a great way for us in healthcare to gain that type of online presence uh, to, what I say, define our online reputation because patients are Googling us and, and looking us up as well. So social media is a great way for us to stake out that online space where we can define how we appear online. And I'd be lying to you if I thought that 
we would have all these possibilities now. And I think I'm just uh, just trying to keep up is taking up a lot of my time. I hear. How do you balance that? Because you're still in private practice, correct? I am. I see patients four days a week. Yes. Okay. And then does the day-to-day um, kind of editorial uh, management of Kevin MD uh, occupy your um, other day then? Or is it all the time? Tell us uh, kind of how you balance that. Yep. It's pretty much all the time. Uh, obviously, the day that uh, my administrative day that I'm off on Fridays, I spend a lot of time uh, curating and editing posts. I uh, go through and uh, rehearse uh, talks for upcoming keynotes. But it has to be a seven-day-a-week uh, job. Uh, I post four times a day, and the pieces uh, come in every day. So I spend a few hours before I see patients. I spend a few hours after my kids sleep. And and it, it does take a lot of time, but I've also gotten so much out of it. And I think that the physician community as a whole has gotten a lot out of it. I see it as a way – we talked about balance earlier. I see it as a way to balance what I do uh, seeing patients and – I think that I do have a passion for it. You have to have a passion for it to spend as much time as, as I do on it. But it's one of my passions outside of clinical medicine that keeps me sane and, and yeah. gives me that balance that we talked about earlier. So Kevin MD is where it started. You didn't. We didn't have Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, all these things in 2004. How did you morph into becoming then, uh, quite frankly, probably the leading physician social media expert? Well, I think that you need to look at other industries. I think, um, as you know, with healthcare, mm-hmm. everything with healthcare are about is about two to three years behind any other industry. Yeah. So the advice I give to people in the healthcare space is that if you want to know what the future is like, just look at other industries. So if you look at how social media is affecting the media industry and affecting newspapers in general. And I think that you could use a lot of lessons from that and apply it to healthcare. For instance, if you look at a, a newspapers these days, no one can survive as a simple print newspaper. You have to have a social media presence. You need to have a video presence. You need to have a mobile presence. If you look at a lot of healthcare platforms or you know, hospitals and academic medical centers, they don't have that type of presence, but eventually consumers and patients are going to demand that. So I applied some of the lessons to Kevin MD and realized that people don't necessarily go to KevinMD.com to read posts. They go and read my posts on Twitter, on Facebook. So you need to be able to apply some social media lessons that the media has learned and apply it to the healthcare space. And if you do that, you'll always be ahead of the curve in healthcare. And do you primarily have a Facebook and uh, Twitter presence? Do you use any other social media platforms? Facebook and Twitter are my two major ones, um, uh, in addition to my site. I also have a presence on uh, LinkedIn and, to a lesser extent, Pinterest as well. And of all those, which one's your favorite? Which one's of my favorite? I think that if you, it depends on what your goals are. Uh, I would say Twitter and Facebook are, are equally important. Mm-hmm. They serve different purposes. People consume information on in different ways. Uh, as you know, there are some people who only are on Facebook and get all their news on Facebook. And on the flip side of the coin, there's also people who get their news solely on Twitter. Uh, I think they serve different audiences. I, I think that each serve also... Uh, in terms of how your content is shared, I think uh, Facebook has a greater percentage of your posts uh, proverbially going viral and, and being spread. And now with Facebook, you have Facebook Live. 
and uh, they're experimenting with live video. So it's a great way to uh, do these live video chats with my readers and really put that human face behind Kevin MD. And I think that uh, it's opened up to a tremendous amount of possibilities. So I don't have a favorite, but I would say anyone who wants any type of platform has to have not only a site or a blog, but they have to be present on Facebook and Twitter as well. Fair enough. So in your book, Establishing, Managing, Protecting Your Online Reputation, a Social Media Guide for Physicians and Medical Practices, what? how did that project come about? Sure. I was approached by Nancy Collins. She's the president of Green Branch Publishing, and she came to me with a proposal to uh, write a book uh, uh, about the online reputation space uh, for physicians because, frankly, it's a, it's a topic that a lot of clinicians have questions about, but they just not, there's just not a lot of guidance in it uh, when it comes to online reputation. A lot of doctors get guidance from marketing professionals and from PR people and not to disparage that profession, but I think in general, doctors listen to other doctors. So I think that being a physician myself and seeing patients four days a week uh, helps my message resonate with other doctors. So together with my co-author, Susan Gay, uh, we uh, completed this book with what I've learned uh, over the years. And, uh, if, and and since that book was published, it's changed so much since then. We certainly uh, probably need to do an update on it. But uh, I think that it does resonate with the physician audiences and it gives basic tips on how they can define themselves online. Because if they don't take that proactive step, they're going to be forced into playing defense. They're going to be forced to, to being reactive. And I think that too often uh, doctors uh, are caught behind the eight ball and end up playing defense. They, they have to, they only care about their online reputation if they get a bad review or if they get a negative media article written up on them. So I always like to play offense. I like to play, be proactive. You want to, to put that strong online presence first. So if someone, uh, writes a one-star review of you, or if you get written up in a negative news article, you don't have to uh, play catch-up as much. So are there principles in that book that can be kind of applied to the medical student or resident who doesn't have their own practice yet? Or Absolutely. I think that it's never too early to start uh, defining yourself online. For instance, if you're a medical student, I think a simple uh, rule of thumb that you could do is a profile on LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn, as you know, is a professional social network where a profile is simply a digital translation of your CV. Hmm. And LinkedIn profiles generally get ranked high on Google searches. So if someone Googles your name, chances are a LinkedIn profile will also get ranked high pretty well. And you can control how you appear in that space. The second thing I would do is there's a site called Doximity. Doximity is a physician and medical student only site. U.S. medical students can Go on the site and create a profile there. Again, it's just a translation of your CV. And the great thing about Doximity is that once you have a profile there, when you graduate from medical school, you will be simulcasted. That profile will be will be replicated on the U.S. News and World Report website. So it almost gives you two profiles for the price of one. Okay. So I think that what they can do is get profiles on LinkedIn and Doximity. It may take a few hours to do and if those are professional sites, and it's a great way to start your start staking out your online space. Well, I was going to say, probably versus 10 years ago, the landscape has changed. I would imagine that most medical students entering uh, classes this year or even just a few years ago, they probably already have 
social media profiles, engagement, etc. Correct? Absolutely. Yes. And how can somebody who has already entered that world, I guess, tailor it towards their new direction in life as a student in the medical profession? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Obviously, students today, they're going to be very active in social media. So the question they need to ask themselves is that, can they translate those social media skills through the lens of a physician? That's mm-hmm. really the key question, because not only will patients Google Google you as you progress as you become a doctor, but also your residency director, your hospital credentialing committee, and your future employer. And I think even more important than that, as physicians, we're going to have a powerful role when it comes to changing the healthcare narrative. And I think that's tremendously powerful. So I, I, I think it's never too early for medical students to think about their professional online presence and how they want to be viewed not only by patients, but also by future employers and their colleagues and fellow physicians as well. And it's never too early to make that pivot from a personal social media presence to a more professional one. Um, I talked about a few tips earlier, getting that LinkedIn profile, getting that profile in Doximity. I have medical students write on my site. And when you write on my site, you also get your own page that gets ranked high. And they start talking about some of the stories that they that they that they see in medical school, they start talking about policy issues. And I think that's a great habit to get into because you really need to start thinking about how you're going to be viewed by your future patients and make that pivot from talking about your personal life to uh, talking in a more professional context. Do you think that being a physician or a physician in training in the social media space implies a certain responsibility in its its use? I guess that's sort of a, a baiting question, um, but maybe your thoughts on how to use social media wisely and responsibly. Yes, I think that as a physician, we do have an additional responsibility, whether we like it or not, uh, when, we're, when we're online, because patients look to us as, as, as physicians for, for medical advice. There's, of course, the, the baseline, which is you don't want to be, quote, unprofessional on the web. You don't want to talk about patients negatively. You don't want to bitch about your job. You know, you want to act with a certain professional demeanor. And that goes without saying. And you hear so many stories about doctors, about getting fired because they're, they're posting, you know, pictures in the OR on Facebook. And that's really at baseline. And the rule of thumb I have is that don't post anything online that you wouldn't want seen in a, in a, in a crowded hospital elevator. That's a, that's a rule of thumb I use. So, as medical students, you really need to start thinking about some of the stuff that you're posting online and um, think twice before you hit enter if you want to post something that your patients or your residency director are going to be seeing in a few years. So that, that goes without saying. Um, but I think that as, as medical students graduate, they're going to realize that patients, are going to, as I said, start to look to them for, for uh, guidance and uh, medical advice, especially since there's so much information out there. Um, seven out of 10 internet users, they use the web to look for health information. And there's this, a, an avalanche of health information. And as we know, not all of it is reputable and not all of it is correct. And I think one of the responsibilities as doctors is that we need to go on the web and, and help guide patients to more reputable sources of health information. Uh, we can do that by going on Twitter and retweeting uh, links that are reputable. We can share interesting and reputable links on Facebook and help propagate reputable health information 
and by doing so, hopefully we can combat uh, all the the false and uh, pseudo medical information that's out there. From the medical students I've talked to, especially when they're studying for their boards, I think a general trend has been uh, for people to block out four to six weeks or whatever time period they're going to devote to, say, for instance, step one study, and they will just get off Facebook, Twitter, all these uh, media platforms, uh, because I think the general conception amongst medical students is social media is a waste of time. Do you think that that's fair? Well, I think that the reason they think that is that whenever they hear about social media, and this goes for doctors as well, it's always from a perspective of risk. You, I'm sure medical students, when they, you know, one of their first classes or when they step into medical school, you're going to have some type of lawyer or risk management person say, don't do this, don't do that. You know, they're going to post all these negative case studies about medical students who got expelled because they're <laughs> posting uh, pictures on Snapchat and Instagram of, 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 of their patients. And I think it's a lot of negativity when it comes to social media. So, of course, you're going to have these doctors and medical students say, why should I be doing this? Um, you know, I have one more thing added to my plate. I don't need this. And, yeah, they're going to review it negatively. So what I try to portray is a more positive approach to social media. I share my story about how I'm making a difference in healthcare with social media uh, not only by guiding patients, but also sharing stories of other doctors who've made a positive aspect. Dr. Zubin Damania, Z-Dog MD, he makes yep. great videos on, yep. on YouTube. And he has a way of using social media to educate patients through his music videos. Uh, Which are very Webb, entertaining. <laughs> absolutely. And he really shares important messages in that entertaining manner. And that resonates. Uh, you have Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson, who's a pediatrician in Seattle, and she uses social media uh, to educate her patients on pediatric issues. And she's she uses her social media platform to vault into mainstream media. She's been on the Today Show. She's been on the Evening News. And by, uh, by using her social media skills, she now has a mainstream media platform where she can educate millions of people on the television. Myself, I've written posts on the blog and I've had the opportunity to write for the Room for Debate blog on the New York Times. I've had the opportunity to write columns in USA Today, and and use, I don't have an ounce of, of journalism training at all. I don't. Uh, I learned everything I know about writing columns and op eds just by googling on, on on Google. And social media has given me that opportunity, that stepping stone, where I can step up to that larger platform and share my opinions and my views with the public as a whole. And when I talk to medical students and doctors about this, they're inspired. They realize that even though they have no, they don't necessarily have that training in journalism or PR, but they can make a difference because with social media, we have these platforms where we can be heard. And I think that we need to balance all the negativity that medical students hear about social media with more positive and inspiring stories. And that's what I try to do. Awesome. So if you were today um, about to take your uh, USMLE step one exam in six weeks, would you uh, take a hiatus from Facebook, Twitter, and the other kind of um, endeavors you're involved in? You probably couldn't because of the demand, but um, if you were able to. Well, I think, that, again, it depends on what you use social media for. So certainly if you're on social media on Facebook and Twitter and you're talking to friends and it's really not adding value and it's distracting, then of course you need to turn that off and focus on the task at hand. Um, and like I said, when you study for USMLE, it's only for a short 
you know, a defined period of time, six, nine, 12 weeks, uh, and, and staying off social media because it's distracting for the larger goal of passing your board exams, of course. But if we're talking about staying off social media indefinitely or <laughs> all through medical school, uh, I don't think, uh, I think that you're wasting a lot of opportunity if you do that. Okay. So one of the things that we, we started doing uh, about a month ago when I actually, the, my first foray into Twitter was last month and it, it's addicting, I will admit. But I, I noticed that just there are so many people who use this platform, uh, so many people, it, it just baffles me. Um, but I thought like, there's got to be some way to present really high yield information on Twitter or Facebook um, for the purpose of study. And uh, I guess uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do is to allow people to to feel that social media is an, an adjuvant or is something that can kind of help them. Because I think many of us use social media as uh, maybe a little bit of uh, an escape at times um, if we're not, you know, using it intentionally for professional uh, development or advancement, but just to kind of get our news like you had said before. So over at uh, at Boards Insider, we're posting a lot of um, high yield questions uh, in the form of uh, Twitter polls to kind of, I guess, hopefully saturate people's feeds with uh, material that, that may end up showing up on their exams so that uh, they can use their social media experience to uh, an advantage in their study as well. Do you think there are avenues within these platforms to do that sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, what you're doing is putting in your content into other people's news streams. And as I mentioned before, people are on Twitter to consume that content. So it's one way to spread your message. I think with Twitter specifically, you have Twitter chats that you could do. So one thing that I've seen with the hashtag HCSM, Health Communications and Social Media ha Hashtag, mm -hmm. they have Twitter, they have chats every Sunday night where you have like-minded people sharing their ideas, answering questions specific to the topic. So one thing that you may want to consider is maybe having a Twitter chat where you can get like-minded people together and maybe they can share their study tips. They can share uh, things that they've learned while taking board exams. And that's one way to build a community of like-minded individuals. All right. So where can people find you? Sure. So you could go online to kevinmd.com and that's my site and uh, has uh, my articles where I have several thousand uh, guest posts share their story about our healthcare system. Uh, you can also from there go to Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I have information on my book there, as well as my upcoming uh, speaking engagements. I'm speaking of medical students. I'm actually very excited. In June, I'll be going to the American Medical Association Medical Students section and actually talking about a lot of the topics that we've talked about today, about how medical students can translate what they know about social media through a more professional lens. I'll be sharing my story and Hopefully, I can give a more positive, inspirational message to these medical students uh, as they progress and how social media can fit into their lives. Okay, excellent. Well, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, kind of share your wisdom with us. And hopefully, uh, our audience uh, continue to go to KevinMD.com and also uh, follow you on Facebook, Twitter, and maybe even Pinterest, right? Fantastic. I appreciate being on the show, Patrick. And don't forget, you can go to iTunes and leave us a review. 
send us a screenshot at info at inside the boards to be entered into this episode's drawing for a free copy of Kevin Poe's book, Establishing, Managing, and Protecting Your Online Reputation, A Social Media Guide for Physicians and Medical Practices. Head over to InsideTheBoards.com to sign up for our newsletter where you can stay up to date on our various podcast offerings, products, and high-yield review of products, and even leave us an audio message with your questions to help you succeed in medical school. You can always follow us on Twitter at BoardsInsider, Facebook.com slash InsideTheBoards, as well as on Instagram and Pinterest. As always, thank you so much for listening and for becoming involved with our community. We look forward to continuing to help you study smarter, not harder. When everything else around you is crumbling and the ceiling meets the floor. the folks from everyone leaves who provided the music for this podcast the song is seasonal effective you can check them out at everyoneleavesband.bandcamp.com or facebook.com slash everyone leaves band inside the boards is in no way affiliated with the united states medical licensing examination comprehensive osteopathic medical licensing examination National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.